All right, I got a post-it note before I left because we haven't done this in a long time, but kids, you are dismissed to Grace Place. That's exciting and fun. Um, good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Psalm 103 is where we're going to be today. Psalm 103 is where we are going to be. Um, if you are a guest with us this morning or you have been uh, started attending CF within the last three months or you've been here a long time but you just forgot, my name is Tim and I'm the pastor here at CF. Um, thank you. Uh, man, it is good to be home. Uh, I have missed you guys so much. Uh, it has been an awesome three months uh, and learned a lot and excited to share a bunch of things with you guys but, and, and got to go and visit a bunch of churches, see uh, my friends, see guys who I very much respect, preach and worship in different places. Uh, but you guys know you go on vacation. Vacation's great and fun, but there's nothing like coming home and sleeping in your own bed. Um, or worshiping in your own church. And so I'm, I'm so, so happy to be back and thankful. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, or, or whether or not you're relatively new, or you just um, maybe didn't know before I left why sabbatical happened, um, our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church of America, suggests, strongly encourages, that pastors take a sabbatical once every five to seven years. Um, and that is an intentional time. It's not just a paid vacation, but rather it is an intentional time of refreshment, rest, and rejuvenation. It is a time to um, just slow down and, and let pastors kind of just catch their breath and, and let the brains sit for a minute. Um, I think the best way I can explain why sabbaticals are a good thing and why I went on one is because uh, while I was on sabbatical, a friend of mine who is also in ministry and also happened to be on sabbatical, uh, him and I were talking. His sabbatical was much different than mine because he was uh, given time away due to some uh, really hard seasons uh, in the church he ministers in. And anyway, we were talking, and part of his sabbatical was really wondering whether or not he wanted to continue in ministry, whether or not he wanted to continue doing what uh, he was doing. And he asked me uh, during a conversation, he said, so what have you decided? Are you going to keep being a pastor? And I was very confused by that question. And I was like, that, that was never on the table. That was never a, like ever a thought why uh, no I'm, I'm ready to go if, if anything else I'm, I'm ready to get back in um, and he said oh well then why are you on sabbatical and I said I I'm on sabbatical so I don't end up in the spot you're in so I don't end up burnt I mean like I, the, the point of this is is to keep pastors to help pastors rest and slow down um, and and help us just have some time to to be and exist um, and so thank you Everybody, I know this last three months um, was a challenge for a lot of people. I know a lot of people have had to step in, and I have lots of thank yous. Uh, first off, it's, it's three months late, but right at the beginning of sabbatical, uh, my wife gave birth to a beautiful, wonderful daughter. Uh, didn't expect that. Uh, and so, yeah, she's here and sleeping. Um, but thank you, everybody who gave food and, and cards and well wishes when we uh, first brought Sophie home, uh, everybody who just helped out and, and took care of us for those couple of weeks, thank you very much. Again, that's three weeks, three months overdue, but uh, thank you to all of you guys. Thank you to our elders, to Dave and Wayne and Daniel for those last three months to step in and to uh, make it so that, you know, a bunch of people, as I would visit friends and family and see people, they would ask me, how are things at the church with you not there? And I was like, I have no idea because our elders just kept 
things moving and didn't need to include me in things, whatever was going on. Either you guys were on really good behavior or I just have no idea what, but the, our elders uh, lovingly served and, and cared for this place as they always do, uh, but even more so in my absence. So thank you guys. Uh, thank you to Amy uh, who makes everything run all the time anyway. And then this summer I added a bunch of other plates for her to keep spinning and she did. Um, thank you for all the extra work she did. For everyone who has served and led and jumped in in different times and places in the summer. I know uh, with me being gone and um, there was just a lot of different things that needed to happen and they did happen. I, I thank you everybody who just made this summer possible for me uh, and my family to just have this time away. It was a huge, huge blessing. And so I am so excited to share some of, like I said, what I've learned, some ideas and concepts I'm excited for us to try. I'm just pumped to like reconnect with you guys. It kind of feels like, like going back to school where I'm like, how's your summer? Like, I just want to know, like, I, I just want to hang out and like hear what God is doing in your lives. I'm so excited for all of that. So let's pray and then we can jump in and get to work. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are good and you're good all the time. We thank you for who you are, for what you have done, what you are doing, what you're going to do. God, I thank you for this place. I thank you for these people. I thank you for this church, for your faithfulness to this church for so long, through all kinds of different hills and valleys and uh, mountaintop moments, and uh, that you have been faithful to keeping this place, to keeping the gospel proclaimed in Roscoe Village. You have cared for and loved and protected and provided for us over and over again. You are good all the time, and you show it to us every day. God, we thank you so much. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Bible, for your revelation to us, for your instruction to us, for you just showing us that you want to have a relationship with us by giving us your word. God, I pray that as we open your word this morning, that we would have eyes to see, have hearts to believe, have minds to understand, have the hands and feet to live out what you are calling us to. Lord, I pray that as we open your word this morning, that we would quiet everything else that's going on in our hearts, in our heads, all of the other things that we bring in, all of the baggage, all of the exhaustion, all of it can be set aside so that we can hear from you this morning because you have a message for us today. Lord, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of this because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So a couple weeks ago, my wife Sarah asked me, when people ask you, what are you going to say? What's the big thing you learned during sabbatical? And I don't know that it was one specific thing, new thing that I learned, but rather the, the biggest takeaway I have from my time away was the experience of enjoying and strengthening my relationship with God. Because here's the reality. It is possible to be a Christian and at the same time have a damaged, hurt, strained, maybe even nearly non-existent relationship with God. It is very possible that you at some point with all honesty and sincerity and truth and hope put your faith, made a decision 
to follow Jesus, to put your faith in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. And you did that, and you said, Lord, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. Jesus, I want you in control of my life. It is completely possible that you did that in all realness and earnesty and honesty, and then over the course of days or weeks or months or years, life in all of its forms and facets and complications chipped away and eroded away at your soul to the point that you found yourself exhausted in every way possible. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually fried. In preparation for this morning, I, I, I went back to some of my journals that I wrote during the summer, and that Again, you want to talk about takeaways, like I, the fact that I was able to just start writing journals again and getting back into that habit has been so good for me. Um, I went back and looked at a bunch of the entries I wrote, and almost all of them in some form or fashion, I wrote about the need and benefit of rest and trust and renewal. Because during this summer, I realized that a lot of my interactions with God and my interactions with Scripture had been about me being a pastor rather than me being a son of God. And so because of that, I found myself trusting and relying on myself, my abilities, my stamina, my ability to perform, and that was exhausting. What I realized when I, during sabbatical is that I was thirsty, but I hadn't been going to the well to get a drink. And that reality, when, when I finally, when that hit me, it blew my mind. Because we have available to us a well, a never-ending reservoir that never runs dry, that is open and accessible to us at all times. We have a God who gives out of his abundance, who is never short on blessing. A God who says, if you go looking for him, he's going to show up. He's going to provide. He makes himself available. He gives us every opportunity, every chance to have a relationship with us. In fact, he will come seeking and searching those who go astray. But we allow ourselves to get so wrapped up in ourselves, to get so wrapped up in so much that distracts, and not only distracts, but erodes our heart, quenches the fires of faith, and hardens our hearts to grace and mercy and justice and love and compassion that we don't actually realize we have become jaded and angry and disconnected from one another and from him. Look, I understand that pretty much none of you have the ability to take three months away with nobody really expecting much of you or demanding anything of you. You don't really have the opportunity to have three months to like play in the sprinkler with your son and cuddle your newborn daughter and grill and spend time with friends and family and mentors and, and just kind of be. I get that. I get that I am so blessed and so lucky and so honored to get to have what I've had this summer. And so I'm bringing us all to Psalm 103 this morning in hopes that you and I can both find refreshment. Because yes, I feel good. I feel great. I had a three-month sabbatical. I'm going to talk all day long. You guys are stuck here. I did get to rest. I did take myself to the well of our God and drink and was refreshed. But I don't want to feel the way I felt anymore. And I don't want that for you either. And I know it's a cliche to say, but it's a cliche for a reason to say that I'm tired of being tired, but I am. And I think other people are too. 
And so my hope is that as we look at Psalm 103, we can file this one away as something that can use as a compass to kind of point us back to where we're supposed to be, to point us toward where we need to be in remembering what God has done for us and who he is, because it's in doing that, it's engaging with him that we find rest and joy. So I'm going to read Psalm 103. We're not going to necessarily cover every verse like we normally would, um, but I am going to read the whole thing uh, because it's good and it's the word of God. So Psalm 103. It's a good one to have in your Bibles, have open. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that, is in, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. Its place is no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Thus the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So for those of you, if you want to take notes this morning, I have a couple of just key points to kind of keep us on track. The first being um, the instruction. Psalm be, this psalm begins and ends the same way as David's instruction is, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's instructing his own soul to bless the Lord. There's a lot of things your body does that you don't have to tell it to do. You don't have to tell your body to breathe. You don't have to tell your body to pump blood. You don't have to tell your body to blink. There are just certain things it just does. In my life, when things are good, I don't have to tell myself to bless the Lord. It flows naturally. But when I am distant, when I am distracted, when I am disconnected, this instruction is essential Bless the Lord, Tim. Celebrate, Tim. Worship him. Because when we begin to dwell on the person and work of our God and we celebrate those things, we get drawn closer and closer into his presence, closer to him. We get drawn closer to him because of who he is and what he has done and what he continues to do. In verse 2, David says to himself, Bless the Lord and don't forget don't forget who he is. Don't forget what he has done. The instruction is, bless the Lord. Why? Because of what he has done. And so we have the instruction that leads us to the actions. 
And we see it in verse 3 and following. Bless the Lord who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with steadfast love, satisfies you with good. David is telling himself, bless the Lord. And his motivation is to remember the tangible ways he has seen God move in his own life. The forgiveness of God is not a New Testament idea. It's not just later on like Jesus showed up and now God forgives. No, he's been forgiving sin since sin entered into humanity. David knew this firsthand. After his episode of adultery and murder surrounding Bathsheba, even still, after all of that, he finds forgiveness from God. There is always forgiveness to be had. There is always forgiveness to be had in and through the person and work of Jesus and him at the cross. As Jesus himself said during the Last Supper in Matthew 26, when he held up the glass of wine and he tells his disciples, drink of this, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. Bless the Lord, because God forgives. David said he heals. And whether it be a miracle healing or through research and development of science and medicines, it is our God at the foundation of all healing. You can look and not take too much time looking at the ministry and life of Jesus and see Jesus healing people. Healing lepers, paralytics, blind, deaf, mute, even the dead are healed from that restriction because it is God himself who is in control of this world. Bless the Lord because God heals. He redeems, David said. He redeems your life from the pit. Literally, when it says the pit, it's the pit of destruction. David knew firsthand, again, how God redeems, how David was at his lowest point after everything that went down with Bathsheba. He's at his lowest point, and God redeemed him. He redeems our life. That word redeem has a connection to making a purchase. You give someone money, they give you an object or food. You redeem that money for something. Your life has been paid for through the sacrifice of Jesus. Without Jesus, we are destined to end up in that pit of destruction known as hell, eternal torment, eternally separated from God. We are destined for that due to our sin and our rebellion against God. But through Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, our penalty, our sin's consequence is fulfilled in him. He pays what we deserve. He purchases our life from the pit of hell. He redeems us. David says in another psalm, in Psalm 16, 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It is in connection and relationship with Jesus that there is joy and life and pleasure. It is at his right hand, it is in his presence that these things come for David. Jesus pays the penalty and redeems us from the pit we deserve, and we find life and joy and newness in relationship with him. Bless the Lord, because God redeems. He says, God crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. To crown means to completely surround, to engulf, and he does so with his steadfast love. Love that is never-ending. Love that is unconditional, love that has no limits, love that, has, that is not an emotion or a reaction or based on a circumstance. 
you want a good psalm to read this week, Psalm 136 talks all about the steadfast love of the Lord, the constant love of God. It wraps us, it surrounds us, it engulfs us, it crowns us. Because the Lord is good. And he doles these things out, not out of unlimited reserve, but out of his abundance, his never-ending abundance. Bless the Lord because God crowns us with love, mercy. He satisfies you with good. He provides all that is needed. All that is needed that is constructive and helpful for encouraging his people. In doing so, he satisfies. That is the work of God in and for us. That has always been his work in regard to his creation, to satisfy us. That was the original plan in the garden, that man and woman would not want or need for anything. That everything that they could possibly want or need would be provided by God in the garden. Sin enters the world and they decide they want and need not God, but their own desires. And it breaks everything. And we see it to that very end in Revelation when the smoke is cleared, when the dust has settled, when Jesus reigns and rules completely, when all evil has been put away. We have the new heaven and earth. Again, it is that we want a need for nothing because God is in our midst and providing for us. That was always the intention that God would be the one to satisfy us. And it's not just God giving us nice things or keeping us entertained or making us happy, but we're talking true satisfaction, true contentment in our lives, knowing that we have the very best of what God has to offer because he loves us and cares for us. The great Charles Spurgeon once said, no man is ever filled to satisfaction but a believer. And only God himself can satisfy even him. Many a worldling is satiated, but not one is satisfied. He's a much better preacher than I am. He says things like worldling. Just stuck out to me. We see that God satisfies us and satisfies us with good. And he doesn't just satisfy us with good. He satisfies us for a purpose. In verse 5, it says, He satisfies you with good. Why? So that your youth is renewed like the eagles. It is with a purpose that he satisfies our soul so that we are renewed like the eagle. You ever seen an eagle fly? Buoyant, powerful, seemingly endless strength and power. It doesn't even look like it's working to just go miles and miles very quickly, very powerfully. David's saying that that, that power, that strength, that buoyancy of life. He satisfies us. He fills us with contentment so that we would find renewal and that kind of life and strength in that life that he has given us. Bless the Lord because God satisfies us with good. You see, David is having this conversation with himself, reminding himself of how God moved in his own life, using these things as the motivation so that he might bless the Lord, worship, celebrate, dwell with, rejoice in the Lord. So I ask you this morning, what has God done for you? What reasons do you have to bless the Lord? Write them down. Write them down. And go back to them regularly and update the list every day because daily he's going to give you new ones. It's not just the big, big major stuff. It's the little ones too. It's these moments of daily grace that he provides that we should be celebrating and rejoicing in and remembering just how good our God is. 
It's a habit that will do wonders for your faith and for your relationship with God if you will daily reflect. And even at the end of the day, before you go to sleep, let's be honest, before you scroll that last time through social media, if you will spend some time just reflecting on how has God provided, how has God taken care of you, and rejoicing in that, and blessing, celebrating, worshiping him for that. See, when you read the Bible, and you read, especially in the Old Testament, about God's interactions with Israel, you can really boil things down into one of two situations. It's either God directly acting um, and interacting with his people, or it's God telling them through a judge, a priest, a prophet, or him speaking directly to them, basically saying, hey, Remember when God did interact with you? Remember what he did. Don't forget what God has done for you. Don't forget how God has moved. Don't forget how God has shaped. Don't forget how God has blessed. Don't forget what God has promised and how he keeps all of his promises. In Deuteronomy 6, it says, bind God's instructions on your hand, on your head, on your house. Keep them on the forefront. Keep them with you so that you will not forget. Most of the book of Deuteronomy is just really boiled down to remember what God has done. You see it over and over in the book in the Old Testament when God would speak and he would call himself. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was a way of saying, go back and look at how I served them. Look at how I cared for them. Look at how I provided for them and for those generations. Remember who I am. But we forget. Or we minimize or we downplay what God has done. We set aside what God has done rather for our own experiences. Do any of you have a, a friend or family member who when you guys get together, they tell the same story over and over again? Maybe you're that friend or family member. But they tell the same story, and every time they tell the story, things get exaggerated a little bit more. Right? Like it's the, it's the guy who caught the fish, and like the day he caught the fish, the fish is this big, but like 10 years later, he's telling that same fish story, and that, big, that fish is a whopper, right? It took four days. He had to wrestle it, and it just gets bigger and bigger every time he tells the story. We are not intentional to go back and celebrate and reflect on what God has done in our lives. Instead of the fish getting bigger and bigger, the thing that's going to grow over time is the distance between you and God. Because what we are prone to do is the further we get away from a situation is to begin to convince ourselves that we were way more vital in that situation than God was. Right? In the moment, it's, God, I need a job. I need you to provide for me. Lord, please provide. And then he does. And amen. And we celebrate. Look how God has provided. I was desperate. I needed to get bills paid. God provided an opportunity. Amen and amen. But over time, what happens? We begin to forget. We begin to minimize just how desperate we were. And it's no longer, look how God provided, but rather, well, it was my resume that got me the interview. And man, I crushed that interview. And I'm the one who wrote that thank you card for the interview and sent it in afterwards. I did a lot of the work. I'm the one who worked hard. Look what I provided for myself. If you are seeking rest, refreshment, if you are thirsty, and looking for the well that doesn't run dry, the GPS is going to tell you, go back. Go back into history. Go back and look 
at the God that you serve. Go back and read. Go back and experience. Go back and, be, and connect with the God who made you and knows you and loves you. The God who does the things he has done in the Bible. Go back into your own history, into your own life, and remember how God has provided for you. And let that draw you into his presence. There's a song out on Caleb right now titled, Yes, He Can. And the chorus of it says, Did he move every mountain? Did he part every sea? Yes, he did. So yes, he can. Did he defeat the darkness? Did he deliver me? Yes, he did. So yes, he can. The way God has moved in the past is the way God will move in the future. God does not change. It's who he is. So get focused on the provision of our God and let it draw you into his presence. But David doesn't leave it at just what God has done, though he could spend days and days celebrating that. He goes on to draw out the characteristics of who God is as a reminder and a reason to run to him. And so we see the character of God. We had the, the instruction and the actions, and now we have the character. We see in verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Righteous and justice, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Righteous and justice, these two, two things are linked. Because God is righteous, he brings justice. And the way God executes his justice is always righteous, is always fair. For the Jewish people, for the Israelites, they see all of these characteristics of God and more played out throughout their history, especially when it comes to Exodus. Right? God appears to Moses and he tells him, I have heard my people, I have seen my people suffer, I have heard their cries for help, and I'm sending you to go bring them out of slavery. I'm sending you, Moses, to free my people and bring them to the promised land. And throughout all that sequence of events, being pulled out of Egypt, all the, the ten plagues, being pulled out of Egypt, getting to Canaan, God is tangibly showing his people his acts of love, mercy, justice, and righteousness. He provides food and water and direction for them. He gives them instructions, the law, on how to best live and serve and care for one another. The events surrounding the exodus from Egypt showed that God is righteous. Even when the people complained and went astray, it didn't change God's right character. When we go astray, not if, when we go astray and rebel and forget and ignore, it doesn't change God's right character. He is who he is. He is the I am. He is not the I will based on what they do. In verse 8, David says, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This description of God is almost verbatim how God describes himself to Moses in Exodus 34, and it's actually a verse that is quoted multiple times, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. Multiple times, different prophets go back and say, this is who God is. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And as I said, that happened in Exodus 34. Exodus 32 is the golden calf situation, where the people make a false image, where the people have a lack of leadership. Moses is gone for like 20 minutes, and they lose their minds, and it's chaos. And they build this golden calf. And after all of that back and forth, God says, I I'm merciful and gracious. This isn't the end. I am abounding in steadfast love. 
and I am for you. These characteristics of who God is, his mercy and grace, the fact that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love is not contingent on who we are. It's who he is. Even when we sin, even when we disobey, it's his character. That will not change. And it's not a new development. This is not a a brand new idea. Great theologian Matthew Henry says, God has never been rigorous and severe with us. Always tender, full of compassion and ready to forgive. He is slow to anger. He doesn't have a short fuse. Otherwise, we'd all been wiped out a long time ago. Because he is abounding in mercy and grace, he is slow to anger. He gives space for repentance. He is patient with us. He is patient enough with me to allow me the time to understand I was a sinner in need of a Savior. He is patient enough with you to allow you the time to understand you are a sinner in need of a Savior. He is still showing his patience by giving those in our lives that we know, our friends and family, and those even we don't know around the world who don't know him, time to come to understand the truth of the gospel. He has mercy and compassion and grace that abounds. It is overflowing out of his steadfast love. That's the God we serve. Hear it again in verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. If God one day said, you know what, we're tossing out, forget the grace, forget the mercy, we're doing this strictly by right and wrong. If you're wrong, you are out. If you are right, you are with me. If that was the standard, we would all be in trouble. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of that sin is death. You can try and rationalize and minimize your sin as not that bad. It's still sin. It still equals death. But the beautiful thing about our God is that he is all of these different characteristics we've talked about and a bunch more, all at the same time. They do not counter, count each other out. They do not, one does not take over and minimize the others. He is all of these things at all times. He is always right and just and holy and perfect and at the same time gracious and merciful and compassionate. How else can you explain as far as the east is from the west, he removes our sins? And all of that is shown through Jesus' death and resurrection. There had to be a payment for sin. Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, and he says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. He does not treat us based on our sin or repay us for it. His wrath was totally and completely poured out on Jesus at the cross, which means there is never a sin that you can commit that God sees and it won't be covered. It won't have been paid already by the Jesus at the cross. You can't out-sin the grace of God. That's the gospel. That's the good news that it's not about us and how good we can be, but how great our God is. That's the fountain. That's where you go to be refreshed. That is the waters of life that you can go cannonballing into at any moment and find renewal and rest and life. Now look, it doesn't remove us from the evil of this world. It doesn't remove us from the problems of this life. There will still be things trying to wreck and destroy and break us. 
we live in a fallen, broken world. All the more reason that we need to make it a habit, a daily, regular occurrence to go back to him and be refreshed and renewed. All the more reason to go back over and over again and be reminded of who God is and what he has done and just how good he is. I wonder how much of the angst and turmoil, the hardships that we experience on a daily basis, how much of the doubt and fear, anger and regret, lack of faith and lack of trust and lack of compassion and lack of empathy, I wonder how much of that would be addressed by remembering. Remembering who God is. Remembering what he has done. Remembering that if you, if you have faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, if you have trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are a child of God. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are his joy. You are loved. You are his. That you are not the sins that you have committed, and you are not the sins that have been committed against you. You are a new creation. You are his work of art. You are all of those things and so much more. Matthew 11, Jesus invites those who would hear him. And he still speaks to us today, those who will hear his words and invites us and says, come to me, to all who labor, to all who are heavy laden, to those who are beaten up, to those who are dead tired, to those longing and searching, to those who don't know if they got another step in their shoe, to those who are overwhelmed by this world. If you will go to Jesus, you will find rest. In him there is rest, there is renewal, and there is hope. I'm going to close with this one. In John 4, Jesus sits at a well and he has a conversation with a woman. Culturally speaking, this should not have happened for a lot of different reasons. Culturally speaking, she shouldn't have been there at that time of day. And he shouldn't have been talking to her. But God was doing something. Jesus has a conversation with her, and he asks her for some water from this well. She's taken aback, totally shocked that he would ask her, that he, a Jewish man, would ask her, a Samaritan woman, for a drink. They don't interact, let alone serve one another. She's completely shocked that he would even ask. He responds to her and says, if you understood who was asking you, you wouldn't be shocked by the request. You would be asking me for water. He goes on and he says, look, anyone who drinks from this well we're sitting at, eventually they're going to get thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, they will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Brothers and sisters, when we drink of the water of self-reliance, self-indulgence, self-righteousness. When we drink of the water of material gain, of status, of power, of influence, of experience, when we drink of the waters of this world, it is like trying to quench your thirst with salt water. Possible. Jesus and him alone offers to you a living water of which will never run dry and will always satisfy. 
Remember who God is. Remember what he has done. And as we do so, I pray that we would be a spiritually hydrated people who regularly go to the well to drink. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for your word. We thank you for your availability, for the access you have given your children, that you are the God of all existence who created all things, maintains all things, sustains all things, and yet you allow us to run into the throne room, to run and go boldly before you with what we might consider the littlest of requests. And they are not minimal, they are not secondary. They're important to you because they're important to us. You hear us and you respond and you walk with these things and walk with us in them and you empathize and sympathize with us. We have this unfiltered access. We have your word, the God of all existence who spoke all existence into life, gave us his word. And we don't take advantage. Lord, I pray that you would cultivate in us a hunger and thirst to know you deeper. To never be satisfied with how well we know you, how deep of a relationship we have, that we would always want more, that we would always be pursuing you deeper and more, always mining more, always pursuing you more, because we know there is always more to know and more to learn and more to experience of you. God, as we come after you, we pray that you would satisfy us, that we would find our satisfaction in you and not in this world, not in the things and relationships of this place, but in you. We'd find our rest in you. We'd find our renewal in you, our our everything, because you are everything. Remind us, God, take us back to that day, that first time, For those who know you that first time when we tasted and saw that you were good, just how hungry and thirsty, how much we wanted more of you, Lord, I pray that that would spark again in us. We would have hearts and minds that long after you, that wake up wanting to be with you, that go to sleep thanking you and wanting to be with you, that that is the, the mindset that we carry throughout the day, that we let the gospel filter every interaction we have so that we might be pursuing you and making much of you in every interaction, whether with people or even just in our own minds, we would be making much of you. God, for those who don't know you, for those who are parched, who those who are searching and longing and looking for satisfaction and looking for some kind of fulfillment outside of you, I pray that this morning, today, they would come to know that they have a desperate need, but that need can be fulfilled in you. That if they would put their faith in Jesus, they would have new life, that they would have that satisfaction, they would have their thirst quenched. God, as we go into the world, as we go to work, as we go to school, as we interact with friends and family, you call us to be the lights of the world. You call us to reflect you to this world, to shine brightly in the darkness. can't do that without you. 
Help us to shine brightly. Help us to be the lights you have made us to be. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.